Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Yale's Whitney Humanities Center presents an interdisciplinary discussion on naming nature between Michael Donahue, Jacques Gautier, James Prosek, Richard Prum, Kevin DeQuirez, and Zoltan Zabo. Naming Nature, a conversation on the nature, use, and limitations of biological taxonomies, is part of the 2011 Schulman Lectures in Science and the Humanities. For years, I've immersed myself in nature in my childhood, influenced by my father's passion for birds, and later driven by the research I was doing for several natural history-related books as a painter and writer. In this time, a single thing, I don't even know what to call it, a theme or problem, has run like a thread repeatedly through my thoughts and feelings. Originally a source of comfort, it later turned to uneasiness. This thing had something to do with how and why we name things and something to do with order, and has been an elusive and hard to define part of a personal inquiry since I was a child, since I drew my first bright orange bird. It happened to be a cock of the rock. Um, I relished the field guides on my father's shelves with all the neatly lined up images on each page and adjacent names the diagrams of silhouettes of birds with corresponding numbers to teach us to identify things. As a child, I drew and painted birds after Audubon and sometimes think that I preferred the ordered world of birds in the book, flying all in one place, than the living ones in the woods. Later in my youth, around nine, I started to draw fish. The fish that became the focus of my passion, the trout, was especially incandescent. Their colors faded immediately when they died and their internal light, internal light went out. I wanted to make something ordered and permanent of the ephemeral beauty I saw, perhaps to get some part of it under my skin to make it mine. Drawing, like naming, was a way of doing this, so I began to draw them, resolved to make a book of the trout of North America. I soon discovered that this was not so easy as just finding fish and depicting them. How many kinds of trout were there, and what was a trout anyway? Partway through my childhood researches, the fish known as trout had been reclassified based on genetic analysis, Trout were actually part of three separate evolutionary lineages, one related to Pacific salmon, the rainbow trout, one the Atlantic salmon, the brown trout, and the native trout of my home streams were actually related to the Arctic char, the brook trout. The word trout was a cultural relic used to describe a fish of cold water streams with a streamlined profile, a square dorsal fin and a fleshy fin closer to the tail called an adipose fin. The scientific or Latin names of these fish the genus followed by species names or binomials like Homo sapiens for humans, a legacy of the 18th century Swedish botanist Carl Linnaeus, were even more of a puzzle than the common name trout when deciding what to put in the book I wanted to make. In my child mind, I accepted the names without question, at least where there was consensus, but I soon learned that consensus in taxonomy was as elusive as some of the fish I sought to catch. Still, if I were ever going to complete a book on trout, I needed to make some choices. Do I include the golden trout of the high Sierras of California? It is stunningly beautiful for more than a century considered a separate species, though some now maintain that genetically it was identical to the rainbow trout. Incidentally, there are consequences to naming and where we split species, especially concerning conservation, a topic we might discuss uh, today. Governments and individuals tend to get behind the conservation of organisms if they can clearly identify them as species. For a subsequent book on trout of the world, I traveled off and on for six years through Europe and Asia looking for trout to paint. Here things got even murkier. 
many of the fish I observed from Iceland to Kyrgyzstan, from Arctic Russia to Morocco, were considered to be one single species, Salmo truta, the brown trout. But wherever we went, from the headwaters of the Tigris River to Lake Sevan in Armenia, my travel companions and I noticed these fish were behaviorally and physically different. From river to river along the Black Sea or the Caspian, the fish were reproductively isolated and slightly varied. Where did you draw lines between them? Darwin himself was frustrated with classification, where to draw lines amidst infinite beauty and diversity. It is really laughable, he wrote, to see what different ideas are prominent in various naturalist minds when we speak of species. It all comes, I believe, from trying to define the undefinable. I look at the term species, he later wrote, as one arbitrarily given for the sake of convenience to a set of individuals closely resembling each other. Uh, granted, Darwin was a while ago, and some of you may cringe at that statement, but. <laughs> Stephen Jay Gould called the human mind a pattern-seeking machine. We look for order in nature, but, quote, nature mocks our attempts to encase her in a straitjacket by establishing an almost laughably fortuitous reason for some apparent highly visible regularities that have played a major role in human history. Much of nature is messy and multifarious, he wrote, markedly resistant to simple mathematical expression. While some were questioning the idea of species and what order itself means to humans, others were examining the systems and metaphors we use to describe evolving life. The Linnaean system created in a pre-Darwinian world was possibly up for revision. On this, our own Michael Donahue has said, the Linnaean system is simply not up to the task of handling the sheer amount of information we're amassing about diversity. We think there's a better way to classify the natural world. And perhaps there was something to be said for aspects of our lives remaining unnamed or unclassified. I had always associated clouds with daydreaming and the imagination. Clouds change before our eyes, one morphing into the next, to the point where we cannot determine where one starts and another ends. If humans could live for thousands of years instead of decades, and you could speed up life on Earth, I believe we would see organisms more like clouds, fluid and constantly changing and interconnected. How can I, our way of coming to understand the world reflect this beauty and evanescence? Maybe it's the role of art, not science, to approach such questions. Just when I thought clouds were one of the last frontiers of the unnameable and unclassifiable, someone recently emerged with a field guide to clouds with rating systems for cloud watchers, scoring a higher mark if you can find an especially strange one. And as it turns out, clouds have been classified with genus and species names like Cirrocumulus flocus, the tufted cloud, or Cirrus spicatus, the patchy, dense cloud. The author maintains that by naming and identifying clouds, that we will be able to better appreciate a cloudy day. Perhaps there was room in the world for both cloud watching, like bird watching, the pursuit of seeking and identifying, and cloud gazing, where you are able to go beyond the names and just stare and wonder. Thank you. So uh, I guess I've been asked to go next, and thank you very much, uh, James, for instigating this, uh, this whole event. Um, so I guess I'm, uh, the reasons I'm here is one, that I share so much with James, and second, that I disagree so much with James. <laughs> but since I'm moderating, I'll try to keep that in, in control. Uh, I too started uh, with my interest in ornithology or in birds as a child, uh, and uh, very soon after uh, the ornithological world became a subject of interest, it became uh, a, a, an interest to learn the names. Uh, prior to that time, I did uh, 
uh, less, useful, uh, less useful things like memorize uh, uh, who was the fattest man and who ate the most whelks out of the Guinness Book of World Records. So I, I think learning the names of birds was probably in advance uh, over, 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 over such activities. But I think that speaks to at least something about the, the development of uh, the, the, the urge to name or the, or the, or the urge to, 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 to attach names to things, right? Uh, it happens early in life. Uh, and uh, I know that uh, uh, with my oldest uh, son, I had, uh, of course, uh, more opportunity than with later kids uh, to pour over books and point out things. And I can remember one of his very first words was owl. Owl, owl, owl. And he was really good at picking owls. So we opened pages and he would look for the owl and go, owl, right? And uh, then we got a particularly diverse book that included the uh, animals of Madagascar. And there was a little mouse lemur uh, and he turned the page and he said, ow, ow. And uh, he would not be corrected. I tried to describe, see, it doesn't have feathers. It's, it's got fur. See, it's a male. No, ow, ow. There was something about those eyes in the front that were pointing right at. So, so uh, early on, we attached names uh, in, in, using, uh, using maybe other criteria. He'd absorb maybe the wrong thing from all those lessons of owls that I pointed to, right? Well, um, I stayed with birds. I stayed with uh, interest in ornithology. And I still remember. Uh, uh, my, uh, my interest in naming had always been, or in taxonomy, had always been practical. Uh, what are these things? And who are they related to? But I had never questioned what those were. I remember in my freshman year, I took a, 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 a freshman seminar where uh, I, we read uh, Animal Species and Evolution by Ernst Meyer. And I, at the end of the semester, dutifully wrote my paper, my term paper, about how species were the only real taxa, and all other uh, taxonomy was the was the convenient filing system created by the human mind. Um, later, I took a fish course, an ichthyology course, with a guy named Bill Fink. Uh, and he was presenting a, a classification, a, a tree of, bird, or of, of fishes. And I asked in the middle of the class, so, well, what are the ranks here? And he said, don't worry about the ranks. And I said, what do you mean? What are the orders? What are, what are these? And he said, don't worry about it. Just about the tree. Okay, This was 1980. One, 1980, fall of 80, a long time ago. Uh, and uh, we got into an argument, and all the other students were saying, shut up, Rick, the lecture's over, let's go. Uh, and uh, it, later he said, you should take systematics next semester. Uh, and by the time I did, I was already a, a, a convert to what was then a, a new mode of reconstructing the history of life and classifying organisms. Uh, in essence, or in, in conclusion, uh, my view is that we are uh, engaged in science in the discovery of units in nature, elements of nature, uh, and that uh, taxonomy uh, is an essential part of, of, of naming those units. Some of those units are extant, uh, monophyletic groups or populations, and some of them are historical entities like uh, 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 clades that include uh, all the members that descended from a single common ancestor. So um, rather than uh, uh, asking why uh, humans ordered the world as if it was a property of people, uh, I've been engaged in, uh, uh, in that uh, part of naming that's involved in discovering those units uh, rather than, I think, creating them. Uh, and that's how I think how James and I do. Uh, we have on the rest of the panel uh, three uh, biologists who share my interest in, in, uh, in biodiversity and classification and a philosopher who's interested in philosophy of language. I'm Zoltan Sabo, and I'm a philosopher, uh, and I uh, 
I got my degree at MIT from the Department of Linguistics and Philosophy, which was this very strange place at an institution that was filled with scientists, a kind of department that was in an old building, Building 20, um, uh, where the American version of the radar was invented. And most people on campus didn't know it exists. I was interested in philosophy of language. This was the best place for me to be. Um, I learned this, uh, and I came, I, I got my degree in the middle of the 1990s when the last wave of Chomsky's uh, generative grammar came out, the so-called minimalist program, and it was extremely exciting. Um, so having come out of MIT, I'm probably more sympathetic to uh, Chomsky's views on language uh, than most philosophers and probably now most linguists, but uh, definitely less sympathetic than my colleagues who became syntacticians and, uh, and work uh, in that paradigm. My main interest as a philosopher of language is the question of the relationship between languages that we find, that people speak all around uh, the globe, and languages that we concoct, that we design. These are mostly formal languages. They can be computer languages, but also the usual formalized first order languages in which we say we formalize mathematics or physics. Uh, it is a fascinating question why we do this. Why is it that most science is done in this odd bilingual fashion. Part of it is done in a human language. Then there is this other part that's often called the official part that is done in this other design language. Um, these formal languages do differ in, in, in very substantial ways from the languages we speak. And not just because they're not spoken, but there's a lot of else that differentiates them. Uh, the, these differences did not strike people as so important for a long time because the assumption was that natural languages are just, um, are just sort of messy. And uh, you can do what traditional grammarians do, kind of describe broad generalities about how these languages work, but there will always be exceptions, so they are chaotic. So obviously the reason we are formalizing is we want some, some kind of nice orderly languages. Human languages as a, a kind of natural objects um, are not as messy as they seem to be uh, from a traditional perspective. There are a number of features that they share. They are stunning and surprising features, universal features. Many of these are debated, but a surprisingly large number are pretty well established by looking at thousands and thousands of languages that are now uh, cataloged. And we have no real idea why they are there, why there are certain regularities in syntax, why there are certain regularities in semantics and phonology, various other features of these languages. So part of what I'm interested in is what these things are, why they are there, do they serve some kind of function or purpose, and how they are um, and why we tend to abstract away from them in, when we 
design formal languages? Do they abstract somehow our thinking about things and things like that? Now, one part of this larger project is, of course, uh, uh, the kinds of words we have and how exactly they hook up with part of nature. So this is, this is my connection to the question of natural kind terms. Uh, how they refer, what do they refer to, what is it in virtue of which the ordinary words that we use pick out one type of thing rather than another. Um, and so these are sort of general questions. I'm also interested, there's another aspect of this topic that's very interesting for me. There are ways of thinking about types of words that are in some way similar to the way in which some biologists think of, type, of types of, uh, of creatures, animals, plants, and that sort of thing. So some people really think that uh, categories like noun and verb and adjective are natural kinds in roughly the sense in which uh, biological organisms could be natural kinds in the sense that these are in no way arbitrary divisions. Uh, it's not an accident that we find exactly these types of words uh, in human languages, although not necessarily in the formal languages that we design. So that's another interest that I have in sort of better understanding how biological classification works and see how far this analogy uh, goes. So um, my name is Michael Donahue, and I'm a professor here in the Department of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology. And I was trained as a taxonomist, as a plant taxonomist. And I'm a person who's interested in plant uh, phylogeny, evolutionary history, and uh, plant evolution. And uh, just a small confession, I was never as a child interested in naming plants or anything like that. And uh, uh, that came later for hold it against you. Yeah, it came later for me. But I wanted to say that um, I love plants as much as these guys love birds, even though I came to it kind of late, okay? But I, but I still feel like I'm very heavily invested in plants and plant names and so forth. Um, now, um, I wanted to start by giving just a a couple of comments about ba uh, sort of background, I guess, on the whole nomenclature issue as we get into this discussion. Uh, so the way I look at the problem, there's been actually sort of three phases and three major events and three major people over the years that have been very uh, influential in thinking about no biological nomenclature and the, the way in which we formally name things and so forth. Uh, the first of those happens in the middle of the 1700s, and this is Linnaeus. And uh, most people, when they think of biological nomenclature, immediately their mind goes to Carl Linnaeus. And of course, he was very important. Uh, he was trying to catalog, you know, this is the Swedish natural historian. He's trying to catalog all this new stuff that's coming, uh, coming into, uh, into view around the world. And uh, among other things, he's responsible, I think uh, it's fair to say, for formalizing a kind of a binom binomial nomenclature type of style, because in the, before that, people are using multinomials, big, long descriptors you know, in Latin of, of species. He kind of pared that down and made it into this binomial system, where there was a kind of a genus part and a species part. I mean, that's very familiar to you all. Uh, he's also responsible for introducing the idea of a set of uh, ranks in the hierarchy, in the nomenclatural hierarchy, uh, things like um, class, Kingdom, class, order, uh, genus, and species. He, he, I think Linnaeus, if I'm not uh, incorrect about this, had five of these ranks, and two, uh, two additional ones were introduced later, family and phylum, I think. But Kevin can correct me. He knows more about this. The, uh, but the idea was that there were certain ranks 
that you would uh, assign things to, you know. Um, so that, that was Linnaeus, and that was in the 1700s, just to put it in perspective. So that's like, you know, roughly 300 years ago or so. Um, then in the middle of the next century, in the middle of the 1800s, uh, that's Darwin. Okay, so Darwin, what did Darwin do? He introduced the idea of evolution. I mean, he synthesized it. He, you know, he's not responsible for the whole deal, but he synthesized it. And, uh, and he introduced a couple of uh, uh, key ideas. One was the notion of natural selection. I mean, descent with modification. How does that modification occur? And he sort of featured natural selection. I think most people know that. The other major thing that he's responsible for is the notion of the tree of life. I mean, he really sort of featured that heavily in, in his discussions of evolution. And the tree of life is this thing that comes about through species splitting. So you have one species, and then it splits into two, and then it splits into two, and it splits into two. And eventually, you've got this thing we call the tree of life. It's a hierarchy, right? And so the notion of descent with modification and speciation were sort of central ideas. And, uh, and Darwin, in fact, thought that uh, you know, eventually we'd be naming a lot of the tree of life, and this would be very helpful to biologists and others moving forward in understanding life. So that's in the middle of the 1800s. In the middle of the 1900s, so these are roughly 100-year intervals, there's a guy named Willy Hennig, who would be less known to uh, most of you, I think, uh, but, but I think very important in the big scheme of things. And Hennig is the, what we might call the father of what we call phylogenetic systematics. And this, uh, so he wrote a very influential book in, 19, in 1966 called Phylogenetic Systematics, and in that he argued that uh, we really wanted to be very specifically attaching names to the tree of life in a very specific way, and there were only certain sorts of parts of the tree of life that we should attach names to. So he, rec he recognized that we, he reckoned that we should attach names to species, but we should also be attaching names to groups of species that are descended from a common ancestor. So, you know, all and only the species that are descended from a common ancestor, that's something that we should name. Those are called monophyletic groups or clades. So uh, this was the idea that, you know, we, we should be quite specific in the things that we name in reference to this tree of life. And uh, he made a big argument out of this, and, and, uh, and basically that's sort of taken over our thinking ever since that time. Uh, so those are three uh, kind of major events in the history of things. A fourth one that I think you'll hear about from these guys a little bit is uh, something that it hasn't been a century, but it's been like 50 years. Uh, there's another thing that's been underway, which I think is a very important development, which is something called phylogenetic nomenclature. And Kevin DeKiros and Jacques Gautier wrote the first papers on this. And it sort of came about in the 1990s and up to the present. And the idea of phylogenetic nomenclature is to sort of take this whole project quite seriously about naming parts of the tree. And they've come up with a, a set of um, mechanisms for attaching names very specifically to parts of a tree, very, in a very sort of specific way that nobody could mistake what this name refers to on the tree of life. And these, these mechanisms are called phylogenetic definitions, and uh, we may need to go into some of the detail of that later, but for now I'll gloss over it. But the idea is that a phylogenetic definition is a very specific way to attach a name to a very specific part of a tree in a way that I or you or anybody or even a computer could refer back and say that's the part of the tree that this name applies to. And so this has now been formalized in a kind of code of nomenclature, which is called the Philo Code, and it's presented in some ways as an alternative to the Linnaean-type codes that we all uh, have functioned with for these couple hundred years. Uh, we, as you may know, have different codes of nomenclature in botany. We have the Botanical Code of Nomenclature, zoologists have one, and so forth. Uh, 
they share a lot in common, but they do have some small differences. But the Philo code is a kind of a new and radically different way of thinking about naming. And so these guys will tell you, I'm, uh, I'm sure, a little more about that. Uh, but there were just a couple of other things I wanted to say by way of introduction. Um, by the way, I was, as I was walking over here, I was thinking a little bit about if we, do, if we have every 100 years we have some major influence on this thing, then in the middle of this century, we should be having some sort of new revolution in all of this. And I was thinking, who's that going to be? And I, and I thought, well, it's not going to be me. I'm going to be dead by then. And that's like, <laughs> you know. I thought, maybe it's James. You know? I thought James, with his artistic sensibilities, could come along and, and create something really new and revolutionary. So we're, 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 we're rooting for you. Um, a couple of, just a couple of other things I wanted to say, though, uh, by way of introduction. Um, the, uh, it seems to me that an assumption that we make, or that I make, which I think is fairly generally made, is that when we're going about naming things, we're actually trying to name things in biological nomenclature when we're doing this formally. We're trying to name things that we think actually exist in the world. So this is an interesting uh, distinction. You know, it's not, so in other words, it's not arbitrary. It's not some kind of nominalism or something. We really are trying to identify things that exist in the world by virtue of some process or something. And then we're, then we're going to decide we, we want to name these things. And then we need rules for how to do the, the, do the naming. But the basic assumption is that we're actually trying to name things that exist in the world. And so that yields a lot of really interesting questions about what is it that exists in the world. For many of us, we've come to the conclusion that there's a couple of types of things that at least exist in the world as on account of the process of evolution. And I've mentioned uh, species being one of them. And the other one is what we call clades or monophyletic groups, which are groups of species that descend from a common ancestor. So those, uh, those two sorts of things at least seem to exist by virtue of the evolutionary process. And those are the sorts of things that I assume we want to name. And I think most people uh, are in, sort of with me in that, I think. So the basic thing is there's three different kinds of processes involved then. There's the discovery end of things, where you're trying to discover what are the things that exist in the world. Then there's a second set of questions that have to do with, should I name it or not? I mean, what, what, would, what would cause you to want to name something that you found? That's another question. And then a third thing is, if I am going to name it, what are the rules and regulations that should govern the naming of it? A lot of what we'll discuss here today probably has more to do with the rules and regulations and stuff. But I think that, that's, those are the three main issues, is discovering real things, deciding whether you want to name them, and then, then the rules for, for naming them. Um, um, now, I want to emphasize, my, in my own view, just a couple of things um, that I think drive my own interest in this area and my own thinking about it. Uh, one is just the size of the problem. So I want to just get you in the right frame of mind because my own view is that, as, as James quoted earlier, uh, my own view is that the, the codes of nomenclature that we use today, that are in common use today, are not up to the task of dealing with biodiversity as we understand it today. And I want to just briefly make that argument for you. So when, when Linnaeus was doing his thing in the middle of, in the 1700s, uh, how many species were known? Well, not very many. I mean, we were just out discovering the world at that stage. This was a big age of discovery. People were coming back and finding things in South America and so forth. And, but you know, when it comes right down to it, there weren't very many species known at that time. And uh, does anybody want to guess how many species Linnaeus described? Uh, so you know, Linnaeus wrote a very important, he wrote a bunch of books, but he wrote one called Systema Naturae. And in Systema Naturae, it went through different editions. I think the first edition didn't have very many descriptions at all. It was only 12 pages long, I think. But by the 10th edition in 1758, he had described 4,400 animals and 7,700 plants. 
So roughly, let's just say something on the order of 12,000 species. 12,000 species is pretty much a catalog of life as, as he and anybody else knew it in the 1700s, 12,000. It's a small number, actually, and, a, and a, an individual person like Linnaeus could almost know 12,000 species, which is incredible. Now, fast forward to today, how many species are there? Well, there's at least, we think, 1.8 million that have been described and sort of more or less accepted. So 1.8 million. So this is a far cry from 12,000, right? Now, if you think about it, there's way more than 1.8 million, and most biologists would estimate something on the order of, let's say, 10 million species. So we've discovered maybe 20% of all the species, if we're lucky, on Earth. So let's say we have 10 million species. That's even more than 12,000, right? Uh, now you take all the extinct organisms, and let's just say that for every extant organism, there's nine that went extinct. That would put us up to 100 million, right? And then uh, those are the number of species, right? But how many clades or monophyletic groups exist for, for 100 million species? And the answer is roughly 100 million. So for, if I have 100 million species, it's one, one minus 100 million. That's the number of clades that exist. So that's 200 million things that need to be named, or if we decide to name them things that could be named. Uh, so, you know, 200 million is a, is a big object, and it's a lot bigger than what Linnaeus had in mind uh, yeah. with his 12,000. Um, what do we, what do we, <laughs> what do we got? Family pictures? Yes, family pictures. And your um, snake's family, too. So, so anyway, what, my view is the following, that the current system where we have these ranks, if you think about it, it doesn't allow people to talk about enough of this tree. So the tree has like 200 million things in it that we want, might want to talk about. Uh, how are we going to do that with the seven ranks or whatever? It just doesn't allow us enough, enough uh, fine granularity to actually sort of put a finger on the things that we really want to be talking about. And that's, uh, that's problematical. Let's say, let's say we had you know, orders and families and stuff like that. You'd have to intercalate between those things. If we wanted to stick with that kind of system of nomenclature, you'd have to intercalate you know, subfamilies and superfamilies. And then you'd talk about sort of super infrafamilies and, and giga orders. And you'd, you'd have a, a very large number of ranks to sort of intercalate in there if you want to discuss enough of this tree. And as it turns out, biologists really do want to talk about lots of this tree now. I mean, as we discover things, we want to put names on a lot of things in the tree. Uh, so, uh, I don't actually think that this system is going to survive because I think it's going to become way too cumbersome to deal with it. And it's not going to give us the tools we need to really discuss all the things that we are discovering and want to talk about. Uh, you could ask, what happens if we lose these ranks altogether? And uh, the answer is almost nothing, I think. Actually, maybe it's even better because these ranks have more or less confused us over the years because we tend to act as though they're comparable to one another. But things that are given the same rank aren't comparable to one another in any way that we can specify. And so it actually adds to a lot of confusion, actually. Uh, so they're not equal in terms of age. They're not equal in terms of numbers of species. They're not equal in terms of the morphological disparity or the molecular disparity represented by things in those groups and so forth. So there is no way in which the things we call families are equivalent to one another. Uh, so uh, if we lose that altogether, we're probably not losing very much at all. And we may be gaining something by lack of, by, by getting away from some of the confusion that's been caused by these things. Uh, one uh, last point, and that is that uh, the other reason I think that we're going to need to abandon the codes of nomenclature that we deal with today is that they won't serve the bioinformatic purposes that we need the uh, nomenclature to serve. And the reason I say that is that they're not specific enough in a way. What we really need to do is have these kind of phylogenetic definitions built into the naming process. 
And the reason we need to do that is because we need for computers to be able to communicate about all these different groups, uh, independent of humans to, to a large extent. We need computers to be able to sort of uh, recognize what, which, thing, which species belong to which groups, because we're not going to be able to keep track of that the way Linnaeus was able to do it in the old days. It's just too big of a project. And in order to keep track of things and allow computers to communicate with one another, we need to be very specific about what parts of a tree of life a name refers to, what part it refers to. And the only way to do that is to actually attach these phylogenetic definitions. So for bioinformatic purposes, if nothing else, we're going to need to go over to modifying these nomenclatural systems so that we can be very specific about what we mean by a name. Uh, so those, that gives a little perspective, and we'll leave it at that for now. I'm Kevin Decatos. I'm a zoologist at the National Museum of Natural History of the Smithsonian, but I'm spending three months at Yale on a, on a fellowship from the Yale Institute for Biospheric Studies. Um, more specifically than being a zoologist, I'm a, I'm a systematic biologist, which is a, a person who tries to figure out how different living things are related to one another in an evolutionary as opposed to an ecological sense. And um, as part of my work as a systematic biologist, I'm also involved with the issue of naming because names are commonly employed as a means of referring to, this, to sets of related organisms. Um, and as background for this conversation, what I wanted to do was just describe what I consider to be an important change that's occurred historically in the manner in which taxa, that's the, the sets of related organisms to which systematic biologists give names, um, are conceptualized. And I think it also relates to several of the points that previous panelists have, have made. So earlier in the history of taxonomy, as the field was then called, uh, the purpose of that discipline was largely to classify organisms into groups based on, on shared traits. And this goal likely grew out of language itself and, and the need for basic utilitarian classifications, things like plants that are edible or animals that are dangerous to you. Um, but later, uh, partly as a result of changing ideas about the nature of science in general, and also um, as a result of shifting over to a more evolutionary worldview, the purpose of systematic biology gradually shifted away from classifying organisms based on shared traits to inferring and testing hypotheses about separately evolving lineages, um, species in the modern sense, as well as sets of species sharing um, an exclusive common ancestry. And these are the clades or monophyletic groups that Michael mentioned. Um, but despite this fundamental change in the manner in which taxa are conceptualized, we still use the same names for a lot of the groups. Um, an example would be tetrapoda for the four-footed animals, though we now include in that group various organisms that lack four feet um, if they're inferred to be descended from an ancestor that, that, had, that, that was four-footed. And, and we also st still use the same general kinds of names for almost all of the groups, um, names that refer to the included organisms either directly um, for example, the name aves or aves for, for birds, and that's just the Latin name for birds, or by describing their characters. For example, um, one, a name like that would be vertebrata for organisms that have backbones. And you can imagine that this similarity of the names from the older and newer perspectives um, is easy, it makes it very easy to confuse those perspectives. Um, an important consequence of the shift that I just described is that the role of the name groups itself has changed. Um, under the earlier view, recognizing a set of name groups that is producing a classification was pretty much the goal in and of itself. Um, but by contrast, under contemporary views, a classification or taxonomy is not so much a goal as it is a mechanism for summarizing 
um, the results of whatever the goal actually was. Um, each name is sort of a shorthand device for referring to a thing that would otherwise take many, many words to describe. And you can imagine how cumbersome it would be to have to list all the individual members of a large clade every time you wanted to talk about it rather than using a single word, well, such as vertebrata. So in this role, a name can serve uh, as a shorthand for a hypothesis about phylogenetic relationships. Uh, for example, the name Afrotheria has been used for uh, the hypothesis that various African mammals form a clade. And in addition, names and taxonomies provide an index that serves as a, as a gateway to the vast amount of data that scientists have accumulated um, about the living world and, and without which uh, that knowledge would be almost impossible to access. Uh, our business is rather arcane, I have to say. There's, I think, the interesting problem of how one discovers how things are related to one another, where they fit on the tree of life. Uh, but this is a more arcane subject in that it's how we go about communicating those discoveries to our colleagues. And also now that we've entered the computer age, we can think of these names like Mammalia or Chondrichthys or Homo sapiens as being effectively pin numbers or passwords to which all these data can be tied in great databases that are now available through Google, for example. So we can see that uh, changing those names like changing your password or PIN number is something you don't want to do if you can possibly avoid it, right? Because the opportunity to lose this connectivity with that which all your colleagues have been talking about for the last few centuries. And so this came to us, really, Kevin and I, while we were writing a uh, paper together we thought we'd made some discoveries about the evolution of some group of vertebrates that I work on. And uh, we had to communicate these to our, our colleagues and needed a series of names. And one of these great sea changes in our, uh, on how we went about making these discoveries had, had just taken place, Billy Hennig's uh, development of phylogenetic systematics, where it was decided that how similar you were was irrelevant. It was how related are you, similar or not, so that we could have things as dissimilar as bats and whales nonetheless be classified as placental mammals because they shared an ancestor that had invented the placenta. But having invented that, we were still encumbered, uh, this new discovery procedure with a communication system built essentially by a creationist who was describing God's plan and creation. It's uh, no coincidence there. I mean, that the first thing named in the Systema Natura of Linnaeus is Homo sapiens, right? God made us in her image, and so we have to be at the top, right? And then you go all the way through down through the lower forms further from God later in the creation uh, scenario, down to where he named uh, minerals and even plants. <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, but we were trying to 
jury rig our discoveries and incorporate it into the Linnaean system where all the rules are based on these categorical ranks. The higher your rank, presumably the more like God you are and get to be your own phylum or whatever. And uh, as Michael observed, you know, if there are only four or five you know, formal ranks, any decent tree of any group with thousands of species in it's gonna have a lot more than five branches. And how are we gonna get around this if just the normal genus, family, order, phylum, if that's what you had, then they had to make up all these uh, intermediate names, pica cohorts and parv orders and all this, which are all communicated by changing the endings on a name. So you have homo and hominin and hominini and hominidi and hominoidia. And, and those are all supposed to communicate something about where you sit in, in this hierarchy. But if you have any group that has a, a considerable deep history and great uh, a diversity, such as, for example, living birds. There are some 10,000 species, and we're now becoming acquainted, uh, acquainted with their stem uh, outside of the ancestor of all living birds, those species that connect us back to the ancestor that crocodiles shared with birds. And uh, that goes well back, you know, 350 million years into time, and there are lots of side branches on, on that tree heading towards birds. And if you give each one of these its own rank in there, fair enough, we did that, but then if you stick in a new species you've discovered, all those names changed. The tree's exactly the same. The tree, you've stuck a new branch in the tree you've already fleshed out. The only thing is you've found a new branch in it, yet you had to change the way all these names were spelled. No longer hominidae, but hominoidea. And if you go in and use that as your PIN number, right, things are lost. Remember the point at which we're sitting there going, why are we doing this? I mean, what do I get to know about these organisms by elevating their rank from a subgenus to a genus? What extra piece of information do I acquire? And it was clear that there was none. And uh, I thought, well, there's got to be a better way to do this. And from that, uh, grew this uh, alternative to the Linnaean system where the names were defined by their ancestry rather than on their categorical ranks. The reason the Linnaean system persisted for so long was of such utility to biology is because it's hierarchical. God made this, and then God made that, and then God made this. You know, there is a sequence to it. We later supplanted that sequence. Darwin said, it's grandma and grandpa, and mom and dad, and then the kids, and then the grandkids. There's a genealogical hierarchy being expressed there. But we still had this uh, you know, archaic system in, with which to deal, but it was hierarchical, and that served uh, a lot of our goals. We wanted to communicate that hierarchy. But there are three fatal flaws in, in the Linnaean system, uh, one of which is that these ranks are mandatory. You must put it in a genus even if you have no clue how it's related. Uh, the Arctic char, Salmo, the trout, you are required to say Salmo or Ankarinkas or whatever, even though you're clueless. We would prefer that we not speak with the forked tongue here if you don't know, say so. 
because uh, in some sense it gives you the impression that we know something that we simply don't. So the mandatory nature of ranks, bad idea. The second problem is the coordination of ranks that Michael talked about. That is, is the genus Homo for humans somehow equivalent to Euphorbia, the plant genus that includes the poinsettia, and also this thing called Eisenhower's golf ball. You know what it looks like already, right? And radically different uh, shapes and forms, uh, yet both genera. And we had whole schools that pursue the study of the history of life in the context of these ranks. How many genera do genera originate offshore or onshore? They suddenly had some reality that seemed to require some explanation when they were entirely artifacts and simply not uh, informative about either the number of species in them or how different they have to be. They grow up as conventions in those areas. The third part that's really problematic is that it's open circumscription. And that is, I get to decide freedom of taxonomic thought and action is how inclusive is this name? So you could argue, because Homo sapiens is the first species described in the Systema Natura, has page priority, first genus. And you could call all the primates Homo. In fact, if you were a botanist, I'm sure they would. But you could also call all life Homo. There's no rule against that. Circumscription is entirely open. And so that invites us to have very different ideas about how inclusive what's in this and what's not in it. All of which is not going to serve our goal of clear and precise communication, uh, and all of which would be even worse in the age of computers. That's what I would like to say about Thank it. You. So um, James, I'd like to go back to your uh, statement. You can leave your mic on. Uh, um, so, uh, articulate when you said that the, that uh, it, uh, that uh, looking at organisms might be uh, like watching clouds. Um, uh, what brought you to that? Why do you feel that way? What brought you to that uh, that, that 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 conclusion? Well, I I mean because I I know that there must be something that's a species, right? Because we, you know, if a cardinal disappears from the planet, it's extinct. So something existed, but. In the, in the trout, my observations, according to what I saw and, and felt, and at the risk of sounding new agey, <laughs> you know, it was hard to see the, the lines between things. And that if, if you look at trout evolving as a, you know, colonize the coastline of a lake or something in the Caspian Sea, they're slightly different, you know, from, from river to river. And, and they're, you know, like a cloud can change and be wispy and break apart, and you know, organisms seem to do that. Although you probably see it more as a as a tree. Because, anyway, am I still on? Um, I just feel like life is really fluid, and that that the cloud is sort of a a good metaphor for explaining that. And um, um, you biologists here have a real. Uh, uh, distinct feeling that you're doing more than watching clouds, I take it. Yeah? Yeah. Okay, so, so, so <laughs> no, which, no. Which, 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 which of you, uh, 
how would you respond to James's uh, perception that uh, finding these uh, finding these uh, entities is uh, is uh, is disputable or? Well, I'm not saying we shouldn't try to put them in groups or that we shouldn't name them because that's the only way we can come to understand things and communicate things. But maybe once we learn the names and like like you've said to me before, there there is a history of life. Something happened. Things came out of other things, and um, maybe sometimes the names get in the way of things because maybe the public perceives that they're, if you name things as a separate species, there's nothing between them. Um, maybe in the future, the, the infinite possibilities of searching on the internet will give us an opportunity to create um, a history of life like, like Google Earth. So you can scan the history of life like you can the globe and, and see where things came from and, and surf, surf um, the history of life you know, the more we learn, and, and like you said, we're constantly revising things. And um, so maybe, maybe as you watch that history of life happen, it'll look like clouds wisping away from each other. I mean, I'm speaking kind of conceptually, but and then you won't really need the the names anymore as just sort of cultural relics of of a past time when we saw things as static units that fit in boxes. You know, but I don't know. It, it, it may be. A little crazy, but uh, Michael. So, so I, I like the idea of naming clouds. I think that's good, and I and <laughs> I want to see that book with the classification. Yeah, it's, I, but, I'm not against it. Either. But it's I think that uh, there is a slight difference here between the sort of the way in which clouds are generated and stuff like that, as opposed to the way in which the history of life seems to have been generated. And so, so imagine, so to make them comparable, imagine that clouds. Uh, that one cloud existed, and then it split after a time into two clouds, and each of those clouds then split into two clouds, and then split into two clouds, and so forth. Uh, that would be that would make the whole cloud scenario seem more like the life scenario. And uh, but it isn't the way. It, I think it's not the way that clouds work. Uh, you know, I think they, there are different processes that govern the appearance and disappearance of clouds. Meteorologists. It was a, it was a poetic yeah. metaphor. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, but I, but I mean, I think that uh, it's a great it's a great poetic metaphor, but uh, if you're faced with something like this tree of life, then the nomenclature problem maybe has a different feel to it than, than the cloud problem. Yeah. But one what, of what, what James's problems is that uh, it, you, were, you, were, you were seeing uh, different trout in this stream and that stream, another stream, another, another brook, and, and um, um, is there a problem if there are uh, Hundreds of species of, of brown well, that, trout. I would, pref uh, I would prefer that, but I guess my irritation was that all this diversity was being lumped into one name, which may, as you said, be just a problem of bad science and not a circumscription. You know, that yeah, that yeah. somebody so, who so liked we, to name things hadn't been to Turkey. You know. So you guys have dealt with uh, with uh, with uh, swarms of lots of species. Uh, is there a problem if there's uh, uh, two hundreds of species there. of brown trout? Well, no, not for me. But uh, let me make another distinction here before we go forward, because I think there's sort of two issues being conflated. One is like how good is our, our, our concept that there's been a history of life, as opposed to can I know every instance of it? And the classic example of the definition of a bachelor being an unmarried man. But as I look out at all these men here, which ones are the bachelors exactly? The fact that I'm not sure in every instance does not mean that, you know bachelor and the definition being unmarried man is not like a great idea that exists in virtue of a process and as, as Michael likes to uh, say, the process is what makes the difference there, what makes clouds, not 
the same sorts of things that make species and make clades. And, and that's what we have to keep in mind because remember once we get the process, theory of descent, the modification in line, then that dictates to us how, what are the things we would want to name. And the fact that we don't always know them or recognize them, that's another problem. Well, again, the cloud thing, I'm sorry, Kevin. I, you know, it, it may have been a poetic metaphor that doesn't describe life as it evolved, and I didn't maybe mean it that way, but uh, just one thing that responded to something Jacques said about why would people in this audience be interested in the, in the minutia of how we divide life or how we describe life. I, I, think it's, I think it's one of the most important things that can be done, and I'm not the one in the trenches doing what you guys are doing, but I think the way we order and name the world affects the way we perceive it, and um, if we don't do it as close as we can to the truth of how things happen, then um, we'll maybe not uh, do things the right way, whatever the right way is, but I, I, I'm speaking very vaguely, but um, anyway, sorry, Kevin. Yes, I, I just wanted to make uh, two comments related to what, what you had said earlier. Um, and the first one related to the issue of like all, all these different trout that don't look quite the same. I mean, I think because we're, you know, because we now understand that these things are the result of evolution, which is this continuous process, we actually expect there to be many, many messy situations like that where, you know, things are different. Are they different enough that we think they're different species or not? And that's not necessarily a problem in itself. And I think where the problem comes in is if we start treating the name as more than it really is, and I think it's very useful to think of that name not as any final conclusion in itself, but just as this sort of access point to this vast amount of information. And that, you know, just because we've given something a name or not, that doesn't, you know, create any special status for it. What we need to do next is to take that name and to use that as an access point to all the information about it to find out, you know, maybe they, they, they've lumped all these populations into a brown, to, into, under this one species that they're calling a brown trout, but you would want to go and find, you know, if you, if you go in and find the literature about brown trouts, you'll find out that, in fact, they are not all like the same as each other and that many of the populations differ in subtle ways and, and that's useful information. So I think, I think we really have to avoid the temptation of thinking that just because we know the name that we don't need to look into it any further. Well, the, no, like, we, are, you know, like E.O. Wilson's creating this encyclopedia of life where every species will get its place on the web, you know, and the internet and you can search for a name and you get a picture. If you, if you one day search for a brown trout and you get a picture of one fish, it'll be a really bad, you know, whatever way it's translated to the public is imperfect. You know, it, scientists may understand that, yeah, this variation exists, and, but like you said, there's a problem with names because names have to, you know, this may be something for the philosopher friend, but names have to sort of assume things are static for a moment, I guess, when you put it on it, you know, but, but all of you, of course, understand the nuances but how do you communicate that best to the public? And if you don't do the rank system, um, do you eliminate that from schools and the kids don't have to learn that anymore? I, I think that could be a good thing. I don't, I don't really have an opinion on whether the, the file code's good or not, but I think it's cool that you guys are considering uh, revisions to a system that was created, you know, first published in 1735 or something a long, long time ago. 
even though it may create a lot of problems for people. But anyway, sorry. So, Khan, you've been working on uh, <laughs> formal, formal languages. And yes. you've, heard, you've heard a little bit about the, the, uh, the, our challenges and problems. Is there something from your study of formal languages that can, uh, can form? Well, this uh, is a formal language. So we have an artificial naming system that serves a certain scientific purpose. And at this, the same time, we have ordinary language with the regular words we have in ordinary language, which presumably serve a slightly different set of purposes. Now, in itself, there is nothing wrong with keeping these things uh, separate. Um, but you can't always do it. So I think the main question is, you know, why does it matter what you name and what you don't name, other than that there were some practical considerations that were mentioned here. But I mean, deep down, names matter because when you have a name, you are going to run inductive inferences using that sort of name. That's how you are going to generalize. This is what names do. So uh, when your naming system is wrong, then you are going to do your inductive generalizations in a wrong way. Uh, now, you might want to separate why you are doing inductive generalizations in different contexts. So a trout example, there is, there's another example that philosophers often talk about, you know, the, that's from minerals, the jade which is two different kinds of mineral. But uh, you know, the people who are buying and selling jade did not really bother to stop using the ordinary term for jade. That's because they are using that term in context where they, they want to inductively generalize in a certain kind of way. They want to talk about how these things are going to be priced, what they are going to look like, how hard it is going to be working with them. And for those purposes, the term jade is wonderful. Uh, I mean, there is really no reason to sort of split it up and start talking about jadeite and nephrite. But that would be a really bad idea if you are, if you are studying minerals, because they have different chemical compositions. And so I think what we are faced here is a similar situation. There's no question that we are going to have a different set of names that we are using for scientific purposes. And we're going to keep, by and large, our ordinary labels uh, when we are talking about nature. There are, some, there are some cases where this didn't happen. I mean, people used to say that whales are fish, and we stopped doing that. <laughs> but I think those are the exceptions. It's more, it's more like, uh, and you know, if things go as you guys are predicting, then I would suspect that biological uh, naming will come completely apart from the way we ordinarily talk about nature. Um, that may be a problem, but it may not be that hard to make translations whenever we want to relate our ordinary concerns to the science or the other way around. So is there something different about mineral names and uh, biological names? You're asking Michael? me? <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so what are they? Well, I mean, you know, I think, I think it all has so, to do So Linnaeus included minerals in the scholarly right. Turing, right? Right, right? Or in the system of Turing. No, I mean, I think it all has to do with what we were saying earlier. That there is a generative process in biology. The history of life has a certain <laughs> set of processes that give rise to the variation that we see. 
and that we want, we want to use that as a guide to the kinds of things that should be named. And uh, that, that naming things like, uh, uh, you know, all the things that ha happen to, to uh, be torpedo-shaped and, and swim around in the water is, uh, is not a useful thing to do from the standpoint of understanding the history of life. And as you say, people have figured out that, you know, whales are not fish, and they've sort of given up that way of thinking about it. Although, it's funny, when you go to, you go to aquaria and stuff, I mean, <laughs> when I go with kids and stuff, there's a lot of confusion still left about those issues. And you hear parents trying to explain it to their kids and getting it all wrong and everything. So they haven't quite figured this stuff out, I think. But, but the ideal thing, from my standpoint, would be to have that kind of transition where you actually have the public and everybody actually understanding that the whale is not a fish, you know, and that it's actually a mammal for the following reasons and so forth. This would be good, and we should, <laughs> we should aspire to having that happen rather than creating, in my view, continuing to create a very elaborate uh, sort of translation mechanism between ordinary speech and, 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 and biology speech about the tree of life. To the extent we can, I think we should make these things coincident and bring, but you just the, do the same trick you did with the whale and the fish, just do it for all this other stuff. Now, a lot of this has to do with education. Like, you know, I mean, you mentioned school kids learning about this sort of stuff. What would they do if they didn't have the ranks? How would you teach? Yeah. Yeah, well, so, no. <laughs> well, you want to you want to tackle? Well, no, I, mean, I, I, I have one comment about that. I mean, I think that probably you know when I th when I think about that, that that that's one of the main focuses of you know of biology education is that children should learn the, this Linnaean hierarchy. I mean, I, what I and what I find very ironic about that is here they're they're being you know sort of forced or whatever to learn this thing that isn't very useful. And, and on the other hand, I see that a real lack in that, you know, people all know what a species is, but they, most of them have never even heard of this term clade, which to me is a really fundamental concept in biology that ought to be in all these biology textbooks and all these kids ought to be learning that and, you know, much more important than this Linnaean hierarchy. So you would throw it out for children if teaching like... Uh, you know, I don't really care if they throw it out, but to me it just seems wrong that that's given so much emphasis and this concept of a clade is given almost no emphasis when that's, in modern biology, so much more of an important concept. Well, a lot of teachers, uh, like me, probably wrote term papers in college saying the species is the only real taxon and everything else is a, I mean, that was actually mainstream biology for a long time. And those guys uh, had a really uh, a powerful effect on so, so that's, a, that's a big thing to try to overturn. But, but I, I mean, speaking of how you teach and so forth? So, you know, it's, you open up any biology textbook. I mean, I, I was looking at my high school kids' biology book, actually. And they, they invariably have a chapter that deals with this issue of uh, evolution and, num and naming things and so forth. They inevitably have it. And there's usually some sort of a boxed example that includes usually a plant and an animal. Uh, the animal would usually be something like, uh, you know, a mammal or something. And you would say, like Homo sapiens. Homo sapiens, and then you'd have primates and so forth. And then, then what, what uh, uh, you know, then, then eventually you'd get up to mammal. And then, and then mammal, what's, what's the next thing up in the, in the hierarchy? Vertebrates. Vertebrates. And then what's the next thing up? And so, now, you can do all of that that I just said, because I don't even know what the ranks of those things are, right? And it's totally unimportant to know it, right? All I know is that humans are primates, and primates are mammals, and mammals are vertebrates, right? 
And I never had to know that one was a phylum and one is an order and one is a genus. In fact, I don't even know that, right? I don't even personally know that. And it's not important to know it, I, I guarantee you. I've gotten by just fine with that. And, and uh, the same is true, usually it's a rose in the case of the plant. You know, the rose is, belongs to the ro family rosaceae. What do I lose by just dropping the name family and just saying the rose belongs to the rosaceae? And the rosaceae belongs to the angiosperms. You don't actually know, do you, what the flowering plants, what is the rank of the flowering plant? You don't know, and you don't care, actually. It doesn't matter to you because it doesn't make any difference in your daily lives, whether it's a phylum or a class or an order. Seems so like so we're, we're burdening our children with this stuff that is kind of useless. A feudal hierarchy. So, so let's, have, let's have one of you guys, one of you uh, phylocode types, uh, articulate the, the, uh, the, the benefits it, uh, and it, it, you know, relatively uh, simply. What, what's the benefit of, uh, if you abandon uh, the Linnaeus uh, naming nomenclature and uh, you go through a naming process for branches that don't, that lack ranks, uh, how's it gonna work? How's it gonna help us out? Anyway. Well, let me first comment on Michael's thing though. Uh, I mean, on the point that there might be terms that had some currency among Joe Blow on the street and we found out things work differently, and then those terms disappear. That's fairly normal in, in our business, right? We had a whole set of terms of going off the edge of the world, right? And we figured out it was round, and you know, like all that stuff. You know, we dropped all that terminology. They don't put it on the maps anymore, you know, with the dragons all around the edge and stuff, you know, and the big waterfall. And uh, you know, I, I, don't, I see that as progress. Right, but then, uh, we still have terms like pet. And I don't see biologists sort of raging that the public should get rid of the term pet because that term it has no place in, I mean, the public doesn't, the public mean? should be educated in biology and they shouldn't think that the term pet is some kind of biological uh, class. But why would you want to get rid of it? It's a great term. Absolutely. We want to have it. Absolutely. And so, and there are many, many other terms like this where just because a certain class of organisms is not a natural unit as far as biological science is concerned, there's no reason why we wouldn't want to refer to that class of animals if there is some reason for us to be talking about that class of animals. That's perfectly fine. Yes, I'd like to Kevin. comment on that. I, I think. I think where I might disagree with you, Sultan, was, is this issue about is, is, is the distinction between sort of common language and scientific language. Because if I look at the history of some of these things, like, like the idea of a whale being a fish, to me what's happened in that case is not that you know, we had this one scientific thing that was wrong and it changed to another one that's right now. But what's actually happened, the way I look at it, is that before we had this sort of vague sort of not very clear notion of what we meant by a fish and now we that the concept there, there like there might have been two or more different concepts in that word fish that have differentiated from each other now both of which could be used both in scientific and in everyday language and one of them is this notion of a whale or a fish as you know, as being this particular clade of, of vertebrates that doesn't include whales, which are in this different clade of mammal. But another one is that we actually have a term that I think covers 
the other notion of what a fish was, and that would still include whales as an aquatic vertebrate. So we still have it now. So now we have these two separate terms for what used to be sort of confused in a single term. But I think they both function both in scientific language and in everyday language. Well, and names are manipulated by the public all the time, and I wanted to maybe ask some of you your opinions about how conservation groups manipulate divisions between species to get more money. Like, I know Russ, Russell Mittemeyer at um, Conservation International has been, um, has been um, accused of splitting things into different species to try to raise more money. Like, oh, we found a new species of African elephant, but we, they really just like divided it off from another one. Because the public likes discovery and, and naming, and they play off of that. And I, I'm all for it. Like, I, I would divide the brown trout into 50 million. <laughs> Every individual fish would have a name, George and Henry. And, um, but um, just to express that everything's distinct, but, but you know, names have been manipulated in all kinds of ways, like the fish thing. Um, I think there were some Spanish missionaries in the Amazon at whatever time, and, and they were, the, the local people were eating this water rat for um, you know, and they want, and the Spanish missionaries wrote to the Pope asking if, if the people could eat, if they could classify this water rat as a, as a fish so that people could eat it during Lent. Um, so, you know, we, we, we name and categorize things for our own purposes all the time, but I guess you guys are trying to get to some truth about relationships and things, and how do you make those decisions when um, the public really only recognizes something if it's distinct from something else, you know? Yeah, I guess the, it's, that, there's, a, there's a disconnect between what's understood as being real and what the public, uh, I don't know, yeah. feels you may, or recognizes. You've you, you just raised for me maybe the first connection I've ever thought of uh, between zoological nomenclature, botanical nomenclature, and the papacy. But in fact, <laughs> uh, you know, we have the first international scientific treaty ever was, uh, were, the, were the codes of nomenclature in the uh, late uh, 19th century. Uh, and, 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 and they were the first gatherings where people got together as from all over the country or all over the world and said, we have to make a decision about something. They got together and met and came up with these codes. It turns out that the botanists and the zoologists couldn't get together and these, they had separate codes. But at least all the people of the world that were zoologists got together. And, and, and uh, there is actually this process. If you debate over names, you can go to them and appeal and like a court of law and, and, and decide, is the capybara actually uh, suitable to eat in Lent or the right. taxonomic equivalent of those, of those sorts of things, right? Um, so, so uh, but this is the, this is the, the multi-century history of the code, the current code. So if we, if we abandon that and we go for, for an alternative, um, uh, there is some, at least some aspects of stability in that system. Uh, some of the points that you're uh, interested in. Uh, um, um, but uh, let, let, let's hear a description of the alternative, uh, or uh, a thumbnail one, anyway, from somebody. File code? Yeah, sorry. We have our, an international society, and we have rules and regulations, and we have a committee on phylogenetic nomenclature to which you can submit. So I like this, if, I don't if, like if that. If I name a clade mm -hmm. Fred, uh, there, somebody's going to stop me from doing that? or? Or, or, uh, no, I think it would be the case of uh, you know issues of, uh, of priority. That's why they made the codes originally, right? That the German would find a species in Kalawanting, the 
French guy, I'm not going to accept that, and he'd name it again, and then the Englishman, he would do it too, and they go, okay, what are we going to do about this? We, we all agree it's the same thing, and we have three different names, you know, and it, because you get it in Germany and France and England, and so you have to make rules, and uh, that stuff completely arcane. No one would ever want to read it, you know, <laughs> believe me. But there are rules, and, uh, and there's a place when there's some uh, conflict in the rules you can go to, and, you know, the, the cardinals will pass judgment, you know, just as they do in the current things. So, so you guys have reconstructed that aspect, though? Yeah, everybody needs idiot-proof rules. Yeah. yeah, so, I mean, I think what we would say is that the basic goal of, of those original codes was the same as what our goal is, and, and that, you know, what they, they were trying to get rid of, basically, what was becoming nomenclatural chaos in, in the scientific naming of organisms. But the problem is that they chose to make the foundation of that naming system, they, they chose to build that on these Linnaean ranks, which in retrospect, especially now under this evolutionary worldview, seems to not have been the right decision. So it seems like it would make sense to have a system that has basically the same idea in mind about what you're trying to accomplish, but one that's based on principles that make more sense in, in the modern scientific world. And consequently, you know, that's what this Philo Code proposal is about. It's trying to develop sort of analogous types of rules that have basically the same purpose, but, but ones that sort of mesh better with modern biological theory. But just, I mean, in the interest of making it uh, maybe less mysterious or something like that, I mean, the way, the way it would work is, let's say I'm a, I, well, I am, I'm a plant evolutionary biologist and I'm out there reconstructing the phylogeny of plants and figuring out which plants are related to which other ones and so forth and how they're related. Uh, so uh, there I am doing that. And in the process of it, I discover that there's, a, there's some group of species that's all descended from some common ancestor based on the evidence. And I want to name that. I decide that's something I really want to communicate to the rest of the scientific community about. I think it's worth attaching a name because I want to make generalizations about it. You know, I want to, yeah, I want to make well, the kinds of things you were talking about. Okay, so now what do I do? So now I've got to the point where I understand something about the relationships, and, I, and I've got to the point where I've, I'm committed to the idea of naming it. So how would it work under this, under this kind of proposition of, of this phylogenetic nomenclature? It's very simple. I would just decide, uh, here's the part of the tree of life that I want to refer to. Here's the name that I want to give it. I don't have to assign it any kind of a rank or anything, but I am obligated to give it a phylogenetic definition. And a phylogenetic definition would be something that says uh, the smallest clade that includes this species and this species. The smallest, the, the smallest clade that includes these two things that are, we call specifiers in the business, right? So when I want to name this thing, I, gotta, I have to give it a very precise phylogenetic definition that says exactly where it fits on the tree by reference to these specifier species, right? And there's, and there's a, a whole variety of different kinds of subtle ways to give these phylogenetic definitions to make them very specific to where you want to pin that name on the tree. And then the other thing that I would want to do is register that name and put it in a database somewhere. It's probably, it's probably just uh, inconceivable to you that when we name species today under the current codes, we don't have to register them or put them in a database. Can you imagine that? Like I could go out and name a species and it would never end up in any database. It's not, we're not obligated to put it anywhere. There's no electronic file of all these things. That's why we puzzle over 
how many species have been described? Is it 1.8 million? I, just, I said that earlier. But that's a hell of a thing to try to figure out because we don't have, this isn't available electronically because we haven't insisted that people actually register these things and put it in the database. So one of the great advantages of phylogenetic nomenclature going forward is that we can insist that when you give something a name and a phylogenetic definition that it gets registered somewhere in a database and, and you tell people I've named it and anybody can look it up there and see what you meant by it. So, uh, um, of course, the way you specified that, you're, you're, you're saying, okay, here's a, a, a branch in the tree of life includes these, this biodiversity, um, uh, or at least these, it's circumscribed by these two species. Um, of course, you might be wrong. Uh, and so let's say we, we attach the name aves, birds, to the, to, to the group that includes the most inclusive uh, or most uh, inclusive group that includes both the ostrich and, 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 and a sparrow. Uh, and uh, so we've got a, a tree, the branch, a branch of the tree of life, or at least a group of, on, the, on the tree, and we, we've given it this name. And I, I want to make all sorts of generalizations like birds have feathers uh, or are birds are warm-blooded. Uh, and, but later on, for some mystery, mysterious reason, we find out that uh, my data were really bad. And, and that evolution works in a way we really don't understand. It turns out that turtles are actually a kind of duck, and they're nested right up inside of birds. If this isn't so weird. People actually, some people think that turtles are inside archosaurs, right? So it's not that far. Uh, but turtles are actually a kind of duck. Um, it, now my sentences uh, have a different meaning, uh, but by phylocode, it, my sentences always had the same meaning. Uh, I just didn't know that that turtles were birds. Well, let me use that example. So you say Isn't the sparrow, and you've got the uh, ostrich, and you say the least inclusive clade that springs from their common ancestor, and I'm going to attach this name, Aves, formally to that ancestor. Yeah. Then later you find out turtles you know, really are ducks, and you, well, according to the definition, turtles part of Aves. Right, right. It just follows, you know, and you find out I made a mistake. Right. about my initial conceptualization of what was Aves. I was wrong, now I've discovered I'm correct. Turtles are now part of Aves, game over. And so so, so the, what this, but what the, the curious feature is that, uh, that, that Philocode doesn't actually help me specify what I meant. What because you what, I meant what, was, you? what I meant was that turtles were not part of birds. I was, I was, I was, I was and, and it turns out that I was wrong, but, the, but this, my sentences, my utterances, have been given new meaning by somebody else, right? By by the code, and so it, it seems to me that. that well, it, but it, no, under that circumstance, would you do you think that turtles are birds now, or? or oh not? well, I, I'm, I, let's say the data are incontrovertible, right? But the sentence that birds have all birds have feathers is no longer true, right? But it also doesn't have the meaning that I was expressing at that time because well, the clade that I was talking about when I described birds didn't have turtles in it. Right? Wasn't it so like it, saying it, whales it, are not fish? I, I'm no, I'm uh, well. It, it, you know, that was in, a big conceptual but, shift. But the, is, but the issue is, the issue is that we've registered a, a meaning, but we haven't registered the meaning of the person who made the utterance. And in terms of establishing clear lines of communication, uh, don't we really want to know what the person who wrote the sentence was meant? Isn't yeah. that what communication is really yeah, about? Yeah, but I would say that that you, as a, if you were a practitioner of phylogenetic nomenclature, and you did that, and that's not, then you had just made a mistake because you could have set up. That, that definition so that it would either, you know, make the, okay. that name Aves disappear if turtles turned out to be in so, it so you can set it up as a hypothesis. You can say, you know, you can set it up as, as Aves refers to the hypothesis that ostriches and sparrows or whatever 
uh, form a clade that doesn't include turtles. And then if turtles turn out to be included, then the name is just, just vanishes. So, so if you ended up defining it in a way that turtles ended up being included and you didn't want them to, then that's the mistake of the practitioner who didn't actually state the definition in a way that captured the way they meant that name to be used. Well, there's, there's, I could have, uh, have, have specified all 10,000 species that I think are members of birds, but, but we're not advising me to do that, right? You're advising me to use one of these apomorphy stem or... or, 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 or you can list all of them. In fact, I think we did with Aves. We referred to the checklist, that stuff. Uh -huh. Named by so and so, you know, like, and, and listed in that book, ancestor of all of them. You can, uh, it, but it, you're right. You have to give some very careful thought to what is it I am naming, what do I want to name, and are there possibilities, you know, in the future of the tree changing in such a way? I want this name to disappear because I'd be completely wrong. You have freedom of taxonomic thought and action. That's so. I mean, let me yeah. come. Let me come in on the same example. Sure. So. The beauty, of, the beauty of this phylogenetic nomenclature system under those circumstances is that the meaning of the name Aves, the way you defined it with the ostrich and the sparrow, it's the same thing. I mean, I'm looking for the least inclusive clade that you know, includes the ostrich and the sparrow, and it just turns out that that clade also includes turtles, right? So, but I'm still very, I'm very able to pinpoint exactly where Aves is on this tree, and what's changed is what's included in Aves, right? And, and so, Nothing about, also the name, it's probably important to note that the name Testudines, is that what it, what's the name for turtles? Testudines. Testudines. That name doesn't have to change either when, it, when it's related to ducks, right? So in other words, the turtles just stay the turtles, uh, even though they're now related to ducks, whereas that, in the current nomenclatural system, would cause all sorts of problems, yes. <laughs> you know? Yes. But, it, but in this system, it doesn't change anything. The turtles are still the turtles, they just happen to be nested within the birds. Right. Right. And, and what's, the, what's the, 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 problem the, missing, though, the missing element, though, Rick, is that we need a way to understand what's included in what at any, at any given time, because that's a changing thing, right? We're always trying to figure out how things are related, and sometimes we find out some pretty radically different things. And we need a way to track of what are, what are the inclusion relationships, what's included in AVs now and in the past and will be in the future, right? And the way, the way to do that is through... Uh, uh, one, reference to the tree itself, right? And so when we, when we name something in the phyla code, we have to also uh, reference a tree, right? Which is the hypothesis at the time and everything else like that. But we need a way to sort of be constantly updating our knowledge of the tree so we can see where the turtles fit, if the turtles are inside birds or outside birds, right? Uh, so there's an additional bit of information that's needed as some sort of way of referencing what's included in what at any given time. And that's going to be by reference to databases and trees. Yeah. Uh, and and that's, the way it, that's the way it has to be. Kevin? Yeah, so sometimes I think these examples, like you know, including turtles within birds, are, are, I mean, I think they can tend to be distracting because I think it's pretty clear that turtles are not within birds. So, I mean, you know, the hypothetical example works fine as long as you keep in mind that, of course, it's wrong. But there are real examples of, of of sort of analogous situations that are not so preposterous, and I think they can be very, you know, in, informative about how the different systems work. And I think a good one is this uh, cockroach termite example. So, so traditionally, people have thought that there are these two mutually exclusive groups that we call cockroaches, one, and termites, the other, and they were ranked as, as orders. But it's turned out, uh, as people have 
studied the phylogeny of, of insects, they've, they've determined with very strong support that those are not mutually exclusive groups. In fact, like the hypothetical example of turtles being within birds, termites are within cockroaches. They're just basically a highly modified type of cockroach. And, and so what happens in the traditional system of, of nomenclature, if, if you apply those rules, what people have decided to do is they say, okay, so we shouldn't rank termites as an order anymore since they're within this order of cockroaches. We must now, you know, since the next lower rank is family, we should call them a family of roaches. And when you do that, not only do you change the composition of, of roaches by including termites, but you also have to change the name of termites. And then you have to, because termites used to be in order and it had families in it, all the things that used to be families have to be lowered in rank to subfamilies. All the things that were subfamilies have to be lowered in tri to tribes, all the tribes to subtribes. All of those groups have to change their names. This is like many, many names that have to change because of one change in idea about how this group was related. Whereas uh, under this phylocode approach that we're proposing, one of those same changes would occur. You would ha still have to come to the conclusion that roach the roach clade, it's called Blatodia, in, now includes termites. But none of the changes in the termite names would occur at all. They would all, all those names would stay the same. And, and like Jacques said, that's, you know, really useful because it's, it, you know, it's like your username or password or whatever. You don't want to be changing that all the time because then you're going to lose the access to what that name used to mean. Like now you can't go, or if you go and search your, these, you know, if you search under termitidae or something, which is, would now be the current name under the, under the traditional system, is that now that, that name isn't going to give you what you wanted. It's, you know, because that group used to be called Isoptera, right? And so you're going to only get a fraction of the information that you were actually looking for. Zoltan? So I have a question. Uh, this, is a, this is a beautiful example, and it's completely convincing of how, how these sorts of conceptual reorganizations can happen and how they are very, very important. One worry I had is, I'm, I'm trying not to be science fiction-y, but so, so here's, here's one possibility. In the near future, we'll start serious genetic manipulation. We are going to start uh, changing uh, certain things in living organisms more radically than we already are doing. And perhaps in a not so distant future beyond that, we are going to create uh, new, organ, uh, new organisms from live matter. Uh, how are we to think of this? It seems like the particular set of terminology that we are uh, thinking about here will dictate that none of these things will be life. I mean, they are not really included. They don't really have in any, you know, once we are creating these things, they don't have an evolutionary history or anything like that. And um, so there are all sorts of questions past that. What if these things start to sort of interact with the ones that do have an evolutionary history? So I think this is sort of a general question. It does seem like this is a great system, but it doesn't seem to be open to systematizing anything past what we already have, what we all believe evolved in, in these ways. So what, what are we going to do then? Well, certainly we've been engaged in yeah. making new things for yeah. some time, right? I mean, you could say humans are self-domesticated animals, yeah. right? 
and one of the features of, self, of domesticated organisms, their intense variability, right? The Chihuahua, Great Dane, right? Yep. And I think that, uh, and I wish I brought that slide now because there are examples here where, once again, we can handle those better. People have crossbred roses and, and crossbred orchids you know, for a long time. And we have mechanisms built in by the botanists who regularly deal with this as birders, but people don't have such a problem with that yet. <laughs> but the plants, they've been doing this forever, right? We all know the crucifers and it, you know, broccoli and Brussels sprouts and cabbage, that's, right? Yeah, but there are great mechanisms that have been worked out underneath the phylo code that will enable you to clearly and unambiguously name these things in a totally transparent way that's completely confused when you're, when you're stuck with the rank and you've crossed two genera, and oh, now what do I do? You know. How about centaurs? All right, when we get to centaurs, you know, I guess we'll have to worry about what we're going to, uh, but I get there, there. So uh, I got the impression that what you were talking about, though, was not so much uh, manipulation and creating something by hybridization, but if we could actually manufacture yeah. a living thing from, from more like scratch or something. Yeah. But I actually think that this relates um, very much to that, that example that I gave earlier about the whales and the fish, that, that I think that our terminology can cover this very, very easily in that if we were to create some new living thing, it would be life, it would be qualify as a living thing under this, it would be like the aquatic vertebrates. There is this general category of things that we call living that this would qualify as, but it would not be part of the clade of, the fir of all the other things on Earth that are all descended from an ancestor that this thing didn't descend from. So it's not part of the clade of living things on Earth. So there, there would be a new point of origin, maybe. Right, it would be a point of origin starting its own potential many, many clades. Thank you very much. This discussion was presented as part of the distinguished Shulman Lectures in Science and the Humanities, established to honor Robert Shulman, Sterling Professor Emeritus of Chemistry and Molecular Biophysics and Biochemistry, for his unwavering support for the integration of science and the humanities. The 2011 Shulman Lectures were organized in conjunction with the Yale College seminar, Evolution of Beauty, a wide-ranging philosophical and scientific inquiry into the evolution and roles of beauty in the human and natural worlds. The course was co-taught by Jonathan Gilmore, Assistant Professor of Philosophy, and Richard Prum, William Robertson Coe, Professor of Ornithology, Ecology, and Evolutionary Biology. The Naming Nature discussion took place on April 15, 2011 at Yale's Whitney Humanities Center.